Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Hello and welcome to LawPod. I am Dr Lauren Dempster. I am a lecturer in the School of Law at Queen's University Belfast and I am delighted to continue our PhD series and be joined by Daniela Suarez-Vargas, one of our current PhD students. Daniela, could you tell us a little bit about yourself and briefly introduce your project? Hi Lauren, sure. Thank you for inviting me. I'm quite excited to be here today. My name is Daniela Suarez. I'm a PhD student here at the School of Law. I'm a second year PhD student. Um, originally from Colombia. I'm a qualified lawyer back in Colombia and have kind of a, well, of course, a legal background and mainly I have a, um, a research background in transitional justice, international criminal law, human rights law. Um, so my Current research project, um, it uh, addresses the issue of sexual violence within armed groups in Colombia, so particularly the situations of uh, forced abortion, forced cohabitation, uh, forced contraception, and some issues of uh, sexual assault and rape that happened uh, in, within paramilitary groups and guerrilla groups in Colombia. And basically the main goal is to try to analyze how the legal narratives on victimhood and criminalization in the Colombian transitional justice has prevented these combatants to be recognized as victims in the, within the transitional justice and access to all the mechanisms of truth, justice, and reparations as any other victim in the conflict should be able to do. Thank you, Daniela. It's a really important and timely research. Uh, could you tell me a bit more about the rationale behind your project? Yes, I, I would say probably like to start like with the theoretical rationale. Um, I was quite interested uh, in studying the the uh, victims hierarchies and gender hierarchies. So usually you will see how these type of hierarchies kind of overlap between each other. So. Um, both uh, both type of theories actually analyze how society have like uh, social constructions that usually tend to be like binary or like certain stereotypes about individuals, and uh, it's quite related to dynamics of control, power, and subordination. So, for example, in the case of victims, usually you have uh, this stereotype that victims uh, used to be or should be uh, fragile individuals, uh, submissive individuals that they usually shouldn't. Um, resist uh, the attack that they are suffering. And you have the perpetrator that usually it's uh, a stereotype as an individual that it's tough, there is brutal, there is violent, there is in control of the violent situation or the attack. And you see how this kind of overlaps with the uh, stereotypes of, about women and men or the ex social expectations of women and men. So women tend to be described as uh, individuals that are fragile, they're also submissive, that usually don't have any agency or don't resist attacks or like usually don't engage in violence and uh, men tend to have like more the 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 tough type of personalities or like uh, stereotypes and more violent and aggressive stereotypes so um 
usually what has happened is that law has also um, replicated these notions, these social, no social constructions within the, the, the legal frameworks. And in the case of transitional justice, they have also replicated these, these stereotypes. And in the end, they have excluded um, the experiences of those individuals who don't properly fit in these uh, categories of victim and perpetrator and the expectations of women and men. So for example, in the case of a victim who we usually expect to be a woman, so when the woman doesn't behave uh, in these expectations of good woman and a good victim or innocent victim, so if they are not fragile, if they are not submissive, if they are not peaceful, um, usually the, the legal system tends to exclude them from their protection, particularly um, uh, from access into the mechanisms of, for truth, justice, and reparations. Thank you, Daniela. Can you tell me why you have chosen Colombia as your case study? Yes, sure. So uh, I would say that there is like one particular like a practical um, reason why I pick Colombia, and it's because I'm from there. I'm originally from there, so I'm quite familiar with the context. Like while I was doing my undergrad in Colombia, I was I was able to see how the whole peace process um, happened. So like the whole peace negotiations and the final uh, agreement, peace agreement, and so on. So it was quite interesting of seeing how sexual violence. Um, kind of turn into a priority within the, the peace process uh, during the whole negotiations and the final peace agreement. So it was quite interesting. And also I, I have always felt quite fascinated about the complexity of the Colombian conflict. Uh, like there are a, a lot of actors that participate in the, in, in, in the conflict. And also there are a lot of dynamics that they continue to um, evolve uh, through time, although we are now kind of in a situation where many people think that we are kind of more peaceful situation. In real life, um, it's not that simple. Like the violence still continues. It's just that it has changed or the dynamics have changed a bit. Um, so probably that's one, one of the reasons that I pick this, the, the, the case study of Colombia. And the other reason, like particularly about why sexual violence within armed groups. So um, I was also able to see how usually um, sexual, the, the priority in sexual violence was sexual violence against civilian population. So very rarely we talked about uh, sexual violence against other combatants. Um, although we know that uh, that's a real situation and that uh, actually happens in uh, in many of the of the armed groups, it happens the situation of sexual violence, but it was rarely discussed publicly. Um, so I found quite interesting to be able to start addressing this this issue at least from a theoretical point of view. Thank you. Obviously, Daniela, you mentioned that the Colombian context is a very complex one and its transitional justice setup is also quite complex. But for our listeners who are unfamiliar with transitional justice in Colombia, could you say a little bit about what the sort of landscape of transitional justice looks like there and in particular, perhaps the strands of transitional justice that are of most relevance to your project? Yeah, uh, so the transitional justice um, context in Colombia, like just not to, to go like to very long time ago, which is probably like more uh, recent time. So uh, there is the, the current process actually started uh, around 2012. Um, so the, the Colombian government um, started uh, peace negotiations with one of the biggest uh, guerrilla groups in Colombia and probably one of the biggest guerrilla groups in Latin America, there is uh, the FARC. Mm -hmm. um, so they started the, nego the, the negotiations with this group. Um, eventually the negotiations ended in a peace agreement in 2016, although like the 
this peace agreement actually internationally was seen like a really good agreement, like very comprehensive. It included the, the voices of many individuals that usually weren't included in previous uh, transitional justice, such as women or, or other minorities like indigenous communities, uh, Afro-Colombian communities. So it was quite interesting. However, like within the country actually, um, it was very controversial, like the, the common Colombian, uh, at least the, the, the ordinary Colombian citizen from, uh, from the big cities didn't saw the peace agreement as, um, as a good or a, a good goal or a, or a success in the Colombian society. Actually, they tend to see as a way um, of providing impunity for the guerrilla group and the, their leaders and uh, let them uh, access to, the, to political participation without uh, guaranteeing that they were prosecuted for the crimes that they committed. So um, because of this and many other like uh, political tensions, especially with right-wing parties, um, uh, in the end, the Colombian peace agreement uh, didn't pass through the uh, referendum of 2016. Actually, like the majority of the Colombian population rejected the, the peace agreement. Um, so this put like in a quite a complex situation again uh, the government because they didn't know what to do after all the investment that they have to do in this process. But in the end, they just negotiated again, we, especially with the right-wing parties and uh, make some amendments to the to the peace agreement, and um, later on in 2016, it was finally approved by the con by, by the Congress, and it started its implementation between late 2016 and 2017. So this peace agreement um, addresses. Um, different factors or different elements of uh, that are um, related to the conflict or the, or the roots of the conflict in Colombia. So it includes a rural reform and a land restitution um, reform. It also includes the political participation for combatants in, in Colombian uh, politics and uh, political institutions. It includes a really big issue that is called the comprehensive system for justice, truth, reparations, and non-repetition. And uh, it also includes an issue regarding um, the replacement of illegal crops. And it, it includes a, a program, a whole program for demobilization, disarmament, and uh, reincorporation of combatants. And uh, finally, it includes also an issue related to uh, the demining of the country, especially like in rural zones. So um, regarding my project, I will mainly focus on the issue of the comprehensive system of justice, truth, reparations. Um, Particularly, I think I will try to focus on the special tribunal that was created um, in this comprehensive system and also in the reparations programs that will be implemented or that are being implemented through this comprehensive system and eventually as well with the Truth Commission. Um, there is part of this uh, big system. Although there will be my main focus, I. I think I will also end up referencing or make some references to some previous institutions or previous programs, or at least previous of, the, of this 2006 peace agreement uh, that have been implemented at, that have also contributed in a certain way or have addressed the issue of sexual violence and sexual violence within armed groups in Colombia. Thank you, Daniela. In terms of the specific role of sexual violence, from what I've read, one of the sort of notable aspects of transitional justice in Colombia is that sexual violence is being prioritised by the mechanisms. Can you say a bit about what that's actually meant in practice, well, if anything, I guess? Yes, so so this prior prioritization actually comes because 
many years ago, sexual violence wasn't a priority in the Colombian conflict. Like it was seen probably at least uh, as least serious, probably as other as other crimes that occur during the conflict, for example, as massacres or maybe disappearances or forced displacement. Um, however, since the mid 2000s or 2010s, it started uh, getting like uh, a, a bigger relevance in the in the public debates of Colombia. So um, in the case of the current peace process, it was a big issue, particularly because all these women movements and feminist activists and former female combatants that also engage in this uh, kind of activism during the peace process actually try to bring the issue of sexual violence as a priority uh, during the whole peace process and the final agreement. So now you, you can see that, for example, in the case of the special jurisdiction for peace, uh, sexual and gender-based violence is one of the priorities of the tribunal, and they have opened uh, so far seven cases, uh, seven macro cases, and from these seven macro cases, four of them include sexual violence. Um, also, for example, in the uh, agency of um, reincorporation, they, uh, they, are, they have been also working with the um, uh, women subcommission of the FARC um, in making programs that um, can prevent the commission of sexual violence against female combatants during their process of demobilization and reincorporation. There have been also some programs that uh, I think there have been organized by the Ministry of Health, uh, in which it have trained um, health professionals about how to address victims and survivors of sexual violence related to conflict. And there has also been some programs uh, done by the government to try to train the armed forces to prevent the commission or the or continuing uh, the, the commission of sexual violence during the conflict. So I think this has been quite of a relevant progress in the case of Colombia. Of course, like sexual violence still happens and there are a lot of challenges still, but it's, it's a good way. Like I think it's a good improvement at least compared to 20 years ago or maybe a bit longer when we didn't have this type of um, mechanisms or special mechanisms to address sexual violence. Probably like the current challenges that I imagine that still we, we're going to face is that even though we have all these programs and kind of all this prioritization in paper, in real life, um, many of these uh, survivors of sexual violence still have to face a lot of uh, bureaucracy and a lot of practical challenges to actually access to these programs. And there is also quite an increase or, or some reports about sexual violence against uh, former female combatants during the reincorporation process that have then been addressed properly. In the case of, for example, there are a lot of tensions in the border between Venezuela and Colombia, and there, in this part, actually, there are a lot of movement of um, of armed groups or illegal armed groups. And actually, there has been also a lot of issues about sexual violence against uh, Venezuelan immigrants uh, committed by these armed groups. And finally, probably, I think it's like one of the biggest issues, or at least the one that is uh, causing a lot of um, tensions and a lot of debate right now in Colombia is that there has been a lot of attacks, killings and murders against uh, leaders, uh, also including women leaders uh, who usually try to engage or promote uh, the prosecution of sexual violence in Colombia and to try to include the voices of sexual violence victims in the whole transitional justice process. Thank you, Daniela, for outlining what is still a really complex and challenging situation. I guess to take a little step back from the Colombian context, 
as you know, like for many years, a key critique within transitional justice literature has been that um, victims of sexual and gender based violence are sort of overlooked or sidelined. Um, obviously, you've been well into the, the literature now for a while in your PhD. Like, what do you think sort of the, the state of the field currently is in terms of um, representation or for engagement with issues around sexual violence? Yeah, I think like just as in the case of Colombia, the whole field of transitional justice have also been uh, engaging in this uh, movement of prioritizing sexual violence within the, the whole mechanisms and even in the theory. So I think, well, I cannot predict exactly how it's going to end up transitional justice, but I can imagine, or like from what I have read, I, I have um, found out that transitional justice have tended to include more voices of victims or like different experiences from victims in, in within their studies of sexual violence. So for example, um, you can find now, like there have also been some studies about like sexual violence against men or sexual violence violence against a LGBTQ community. You have also find that there are a lot of uh, studies about intergenerational harms or, or uh, damages uh, from sexual, sexual violence victims, so usually mainly related to children who were born from rape, and if they could be also be considered as victims, because they weren't technically the direct victims of the sexual violence from a first look. There has also be, been a quite interesting improvement regarding uh, expanding the notion of sexual violence and also including reproductive uh, violence. So usually sexual violence was quite limited to just rape or like sexual assault or uh, sexual trafficking this or the, this type of like very common and very kind of mainstream or controversial issues. Um, however, reproductive uh, violence has also turned quite important. I think even in the case of Colombia, probably is one of the cases which has been a good example about reproductive violence and maybe transitional justice has been able also to start addressing this issue from the case of Colombia. And uh, we also have seen how transitional justice has now end up kind of analyzing uh, sexual and gender-based violence from a broader perspective, not just uh, about the sexual harms that women or other individuals suffer during conflict, but also uh, other forms of gender violence. So you will see that they are trying also to focus on the, the consequences of economic violence against women or against LGBTQ community. And for example, also uh, the issues that the women have uh, for accessing into unemployment after the, the conflict or during the conflict. Uh, other issues, for example, as food security is also a big issue or land restitution or land access is also a big issue regarding transitional justice. And I think it's also quite important how transitional justice has bring also voices from other communities. So try to pay more attention, for example, to indigenous communities and female indigenous or women indigenous, how they have uh, suffered the, the consequences of conflict that usually tends to be quite different from like a, a, a person who doesn't belong to this type of community. So the Afro-Colombian or Afro-American individuals that have suffered um, as well this type of, of, of violence during the conflict. Yeah, so I would say probably that's quite 
like the the panorama of of uh, the transitional justice i would say it's also quite interesting that transitional justice uh, kind of has moved from the very punitive point of view of justice to a more like a restorative and transformative justice that i think it also quite fits well for sexual violence because actually um allows to bring many voices to the to the ground or to listen many voices of course like the the voices of the victims are important but the voices of the perpetrators are also important and the voices of the community are also important so they try to gather all these voices in the in 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 the justice process so it's quite it's quite interesting and how to reveal the connections of victims perpetrators with communities with their families and eventually with society in the end so yes probably i would say that's kind of the the dynamics right now right now in transitional justice in the issues of gender and sexual violence Thank you, Daniela. In terms then of that landscape of, of transitional justice literature, obviously you're in your second year, so you've a, a way to go. Um, but ultimately, where do you think or hope that your research might fit? Like, what do you want it to contribute to that, that broader literature? Yeah, so I would say um, that I hope that my project or my research will end up um, contributing to address or to uh, bring a bigger discussion on the issue of sexual violence within armed groups because it doesn't only happen in Colombia. It actually it has happened like in different uh, conflict situations. You have the cases of Uganda, the Democratic Republic of Congo. There has also been some cases in Northern Ireland, Sierra Leone. So it's a, it's a, it's quite a common situation that happens, but it's rarely discussed. So probably I will, I will hope that my, that my research contributes to keep like bringing to light uh, or bring into discussion this type of, of, of situations that are usually rarely discussed from the academic point of view, but also from the uh, public policy point of view and the legal point of view. So I hope that that would contribute. And eventually, although my, my research is mainly theoretical, so I still hope that um, through this theoretical basis, we can uh, we kind of realize about how um, bias is the legal system and in a certain way sometimes the transitional justice fr uh, frameworks so we can see uh, that there are many uh, biases and like social constructions within these two systems and probably just start questioning them and uh, eventually try to find mechanisms or ways to try to redress these 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 biases um, uh, to have a more inclusive and a more transformative in a certain way justice uh, in in conflict Thank you, Daniela. It's really important work, and I think especially focusing on somewhere with such sort of complex power dynamics as the, the Colombian case study. Um, so I wish you luck with the rest of your project. Uh, my final question then is just sort of a reflection on how you found the process of doing a PhD in the age of COVID and everything else. Well, it it has been quite interesting. I, I think it, uh, in, in the end, it still is a quite fulfilling experience, at least for me. I found that there is a lot of autonomy uh, uh, to work, so I, I really like that. I really enjoy that I have a lot of autonomy to work in a topic that I actually like. Uh, I have I have read a lot of things, and actually it's quite interesting because I start questioning many many biases that I even have about like the Colombian context. That usually you don't question about those things, so it's quite interesting to to learn this. And also, it's completely different from my previous legal background or like legal education that it's very legally. So you usually don't try to see or, or you don't put uh, legal uh, legal studies or the law in context or within the social context. So uh, you can actually see the, the big difference of just kind of creating law or 
kind of master the law when you don't actually see the reality or the context, the real context of, of the people who are benefit or actually if experience the consequences of law. So that has been quite interesting. I also think it's, uh, at least for me, it has been also really good to have a, a really good supervisory team. So I, I really enjoy to work with my, with my supervisors. They're really, really nice people. And actually, they have allowed me to engage in other research that are, it's related to my, to my research project as well. But um, uh, also, like, they address completely different issues. So it's quite interesting for me to have these opportunities and to learn um, a bit more and probably like the biggest challenge I would say that so far I have faced well probably two challenges the pandemic of course it's, it was quite challenging because I started the PhD in the middle of the in the middle of the pandemic so yes it was quite interesting to have everything online uh, quite challenging and actually to have like very little social contact with other PhD students or other staff uh, of the university. So probably until very lately, like I have been able to actually engage more with my other PhD colleagues uh, and it, it has been quite nice. And still like when you're a foreigner, I think it's quite a challenge. So the, the issue of moving, moving abroad, like moving from your, from, from your from your original country and from your family, moving away from your family and your friends and everything that you have back there and moving to another country is quite challenging, especially when, when you're a foreigner and when you get to a country that you are not familiar at all. Uh, but in the end, I still, I still like you learned a lot uh, while, living, while living abroad and it gives you a lot of, uh, also I think, um, autonomy and independence as well that has uh, complemented my PhD in a certain way. So yes, I, I, I still think it's a quite fulfilling experience in the end. Thank you for sharing that, Daniela, and thank you so much for joining us. Uh, so thank you to Daniela for joining us. Uh, this has been LawPod, and thank, thank you, you for listening.